0: church family good morning and thank you for being with us here today at colonial heights you know the praise team is they just so wonderfully led us into the presence of the lord you know the the name of that last song it's called exalted over all and there's a line in that song it says that for all my sin for all my shame you took the nails and took my place no one else do what you have done you know when I think about that phrase no one else it just leads me naturally to that thought that the reason why there is no one else is because Jesus Christ is that perfect sacrifice in the book of Hebrews uh, chapter 10 verse 12 it says that but our high priest Jesus offered himself to God as a single sacrifice Uh, for sins good for all time that he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand you know here in a little bit Jerry is going to continue on and lead us in our study in the book of Ephesians and what a better example of Christ as being that perfect sacrifice as also here in a bit we go ahead and partake of the Lord's Supper so if you would please uh, pray with me Heavenly Father, Lord, good morning, and we just welcome you, and we thank you so much for being with us here in this place. Lord, for all of the things that are about to happen on campus, whether it's life groups or Jerry preaching the message or Matthew out at Cross Community Church, Lord, I pray that you would hide Jerry and Matthew behind the cross because I know that there is something that you want them to To tell each and every one of us from your word. But Lord, we just love you so much. We thank you so much for that perfect sacrifice, the gift of Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.
1: Well, good morning. I am Jerry Welch, and I am the Family Discipleship Pastor here at Colonial Heights Voters Church. And uh, I'm thrilled to have the opportunity today uh, for us to be able to spend a few minutes together uh, as we do. As Joe just mentioned, uh, not only will we uh, be looking at Ephesians 2, um, but we'll also be sharing in the Lord's Supper together. And so... You know, from what I read, uh, we're living in one of the most divided eras in American life and American history. We hear reports all the time about the polarization of America. And honestly, with the proliferation of social media, something that was originally envisioned to bring us together has actually created what seems to be greater divides. People are divided on political lines, racial lines, religious lines, cultural lines, And any other line you want to come up with, right? The church, though, we as a church of God, we have an opportunity to stand out and to be different. We can offer something that the world cannot offer. And so today, we're going to look at the issue of unity in the church and how that is a part of our witness to the world Uh, We are going to participate in the Lord's Supper at the end of this message, and so as I was preparing today, I looked not only to our passage in Ephesians, uh, but I also looked back at the Last Supper, what we now refer to as the Last Supper, when, um, when, when Jesus was celebrating together this time with His disciples. So before we get into our study of Ephesians, I want us to look really quick at what Jesus prayed for His disciples on the night of His arrest. Following this Last Supper, when he celebrated the Passover with his closest disciples, it was the 12 that he brought together, and he sought to prepare them for what was coming next, his death, burial, resurrection, and even his ascension. They were soon going to be without his physical presence with them, and he prayed for them that they might be ready. So, if you've already turned to Ephesians chapter 2, hold that spot and flip over just a few pages back to John chapter 17. And we're gonna look in John chapter 17 very quickly at verses 20 through 23. Many people refer to this section of scripture as the high priestly prayer. It may even have that uh, connotation in your Bible. Um, It's the high priestly prayer of Jesus because he was speaking to his father on behalf of his disciples. And just pulling a little excerpt from that, specifically related to what we're talking about today, Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their words. So he's talking about the disciples and those who will come after them, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that... The world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I am them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Jesus prayed that we might be one. He said it over and over there. Not just his 12 disciples, but also those who will believe through their word. That includes you and me. That's us. We believe because the disciples did what he told them to do, to go into all the world and to make disciples. And so they did. Jesus prayed that all who would believe in him would be one, even as we are one. He's speaking there of the oneness of the Trinity, He wants us to be uh, as close as the members of the Trinity are to one another. And in this oneness, he says that the world may know that you sent me and that you love them even as you loved me. Unity in the midst of diversity provides evidence of the work of God through Jesus and ultimately the love that God has for us as well. With that in mind considering all that Jesus shared with them and all that he prayed for them specifically for this unity, let's now turn to Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse 11. This week on our journey through Ephesians, we're going to see how the Apostle Paul addresses the same idea of oneness here. So, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, he says, Therefore, remember, that at one time you Gentiles... who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two and so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, Paul began this section by connecting first and foremost to the first half of the chapter. He starts with the words, therefore, remember. Paul is writing to a Gentile audience here, specifically to those who are believers in and around Ephesus. And in chapter 1, if you remember, a few weeks ago we studied this, Paul addressed their identity in Christ, telling them that they were chosen by God and adopted into his family. He offered thanksgiving for the church, uh, for their faith, for their love, and their praise for Christ's resurrection, for his reign, and for his rule. Then in the first half of chapter 2, as we looked at last week, Paul reminded these Gentile Christians that they and we as Christians today had been dead in our sin, but we were given new life in Christ and eternal life with God in heaven. And we remember we learned how we have, by, it is by grace that we have been saved through faith, not in and of ourselves. And so, a couple of things that are reminders for us this morning, as Paul challenged them to remember, I'm going to challenge us also to remember. The first one of those things to remember is we were separated from God. In verses 11 and 12, look back at those really quickly with me. Paul says, Therefore remember, then at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world." We're not going to go into the details of circumcision this morning, but Paul brought it up as a reference to the separation between the people of God and the other people. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant given in Genesis 17 to set apart the descendants of Abraham from the rest of the world according to the covenant that God had made with Abraham in (laughs) Genesis 12 the covenant in which God promised that all people all nations would be blessed by Abraham's seed. So throughout the history of the Hebrew people, the uncircumcised were considered to be separated from God. The Gentiles that Paul was addressing in Ephesus, um, they would have been uncircumcised, right? And so Paul here emphasized that the circumcision associated with the historical covenant— was performed by human hands and was a physical circumcision. But he makes this allusion here. He ties it in and actually does a little foreshadowing of his argument to come by mentioning that it was done with human hands. And he actually is going to contrast that uh, with the work of circumcision that the Holy Spirit does on our heart. He explained it more so in Romans chapter 2. Uh, verses 25 through 20, 29, when he says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Physical circumcision did separate the Jews from the people around them, the Gentiles, but Paul points to a spiritual circumcision. Uh, if I can say the word. I've said it like 50 times already, uh, that he points to a spiritual circumcision that will actually unite those of us who were once separated. So Paul went on to say in verse 12, as we just read, that the Gentile believers were, and you and I as Gentiles, were separated from Christ, strangers to the covenants of promise, without hope, and without God. It's important for us to remember that no long no no matter how long you and I may have known him we were all separated from God at one time. Sin separates. As Paul very succinctly stated in Romans 3:23, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we should live in constant gratitude for this new circumcision of the heart, which declares that all who know him are set apart as belonging to God. So, the first thing we are to remember is that we were all separated from God. The second thing that we are to remember is that, Paul mentions, we were separated from one another. In verses 11 and 12 there, he alludes to this. He, we can see evidence of historical and present-day religious separation between Jews and Gentiles seen in the practice of circumcision or the lack of such practice. Paul, a Jew, even refers to them as you Gentiles. Similarly, in verse 12, we see the covenants of promise mentioned there. Paul alludes to a cultural separation that occurred between the Jews because they celebrated uh, the certain rituals and rites and festivals and holy days that would have been strange to the Gentiles. We can also see evidence of racial and ethnic separation. Again, in verse 12, Paul says they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. The lineage of the Gentiles historically separated them from the Jews They were looked down on the Jews, and they were not allowed into holy places. Later, in verse 15, and even more so throughout the book of Ephesians, we'll read how Paul addressed the lack of peace that had been so prevalent between the Jews and the Gentiles, brought about because of their religious and cultural and racial and ethnic separation. That brings us to verse 13, where Paul signals a change he reminded them of the bad news, that we were separated from God and we were separated from one another. And then he says in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This but now is a parallel to an earlier reference In chapter 2, you look over there really quick, verse 4, where Paul contrasted them being dead in their sin and deserving of death and hell. And then he says, But God intervened in his great mercy to provide salvation, to provide life to those who were dead. And so Paul, again, uses that term, but now to contrast that we were once separated from God, We were once separated from one another, and then the good news is we have been made one in Christ. Only by the blood of Christ can we, both Jews and Gentiles, be reconciled to God and to each other, like he says here, in Christ Jesus. The cross is central to our message to the world. It must remain central in all that we preach and all that we share. As Paul stated, he put it this way in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, he said, "'For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified.'" And then again, he said it to them again in the same letter in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. He said, "'For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures.'" that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Paul said that the gospel, the salvific work of the Messiah, is of first importance in our lives and in our ministry. Through the cross, Jesus brought near those who were far off. Paul used the illustration of distance here to contrast the Jews who were near to God with the Gentiles who were far away from God. And now both Jew and Gentile are brought near to God because of Christ. Then look at verse 14. Paul states, For he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility? Jesus is our peace. The world desperately wants peace, right? Many in the world are willing to use any means necessary to create or to force a peace or what is their version of peace in our society. But we know that true and lasting peace can only be found. In Jesus. He is not merely the bringer of peace, Paul tells us, but he is the embodiment of peace. Paul said something similar in Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, when he told the believers to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And he told them to be thankful. Jesus' work on the cross annihilated the distance between us, and he brought peace by breaking down this wall of hostility. Unfortunately, the differences between Jew and Gentile believers at that time, much like the differences between believers today, often lead to separation and even to hostility. So, it's important for us to consider, how did Jesus break down this wall of hostility? Verse 15 tells us, he did so, interestingly enough, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Here, the law of commandments is referring to the Mosaic law from the Old Testament, and Paul explains it a little bit better in uh, a parallel passage in Colossians, chapter 2, and starting in verse 16, where Paul states, "'Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you "'in questions of food or drink "'or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. "'These are a shadow of the things to come, "'but the substance belongs to Christ.'" Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from which the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God, if with Christ An indulgence of the flesh. So, in those words, Paul explained to us a little more what he meant when, when he talked about what, what Jesus was doing here. Jesus removed the ritualistic requirements that separated Jew and Gentile believers. He didn't tell us you don't have to pay attention to the Old Testament anymore, he said you are no longer bound to your salvation coming based on following these specific rules and regulations. Instead, Jesus has already covered all of those things for us, and our hope is in him, not in the things that we are able to do. John Stott, in his commentary on Ephesians, wrote, Jesus abolished the regulations of ceremonial law and the condemnation of the moral law. Both were divisive. Both were put aside by the cross. Jesus' sacrifice covered both. Thankfully, it's not up to us to make ourselves right with God through observing rituals or ceremonies or laws. And so this had once separated Jew from Gentile. No longer are we separated by the practices that we do, as much as we are brought together by what Christ has afforded to us. So the question is, why? Why did he do this? Why did Jesus choose to do this for us? Verses 15 and 16 continue that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He knew when he prayed, with His disciples. He knew exactly what He was praying for because He knew He was getting ready to do exactly what we needed Him to do to bring us together, to make us one, not only with God, but also with each other. The Gentiles did not have to become Jews, and the Jews did not have to become Gentiles. It tells us that God created something new, and He calls it one new man or mankind together. These believers become a better version of humanity as one new creature, both reconciled to God through the cross and reconciled to one another. The hostility is gone because of Christ. Let's be honest, though. We tend to like to build fences and walls between us and people that are not like us, even in the church, if we're not careful. But racism is never justifiable. Neither is classism or ageism or any of the otherisms that may separate us that we construct based on politics or differences of opinion or whatever it may be. Just as Jesus said in John 13, uh, verses 35, 34 and 35, some of my favorite uh, words from Jesus, he said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another... Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. I think it's interesting that Jesus, as he is nearing the end of his time here on earth, he reminds the disciples, he tells them, the people that are watching will know of his love. They will know by the way that we love one another. John Stott also put it this way. God turned away his own wrath, and we, seeing his great love, can turn away ours also. At least that should be our goal, right? If God can forgive sinners, shouldn't we? Even if we have differences among us, Christians should be quick To forgive one another because of the forgiveness of Christ. We'll see in Ephesians chapter 4 a little bit later, and honestly, throughout the book of Ephesians, we will see how Paul encouraged these believers to, in verse 432, he said, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. He is teaching this church, which is diverse, It's a first century church. They're learning how to do this. And all of a sudden, they have a church, of believers, that are different. They're coming from different backgrounds, different walks of life. And uh, some are Jews, some are Gentiles. And he is speaking to them, telling them how they can live in unity. Look at verses 17 and 18. Paul tells us how this peace is made possible. He says, And he, meaning Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those of you who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Spirit in one Spirit to the Father. So, Jesus is the one who provides us with access to the Father in the Spirit. Notice the Trinitarian language there. Through him, meaning Jesus, we have access... We both have access, Jews and Gentiles, despite our differences, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. All three parts of the Trinity are involved in making this peace possible in us. We simply cannot try to do this on our own. We need Him. Jesus died for our reconciliation to God and to other believers who make up the church. So, then in the remaining part, Of chapter 2, Paul gives us even more good news, beginning in verse 19. Paul said, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, three final points about unity. Number one, Paul says that together, and that's important, we are fellow citizens with the saints. In other words, he's implying here we are citizens of the kingdom of God. We have a place in God's kingdom. We're not second class citizens or aliens. We are full citizens. As such, we have, although uh, we've been granted all the rights uh, and privileges and responsibilities of citizenship. At Colonial Heights, we like to say we belong. It's important to belong. And this is what he is emphasizing here that we together are members of the kingdom of God. Paul also goes on to say that together we are members of the household of God. So, in his analogy, he's saying not only are we members of, are we like citizens of the same kingdom, we're also members of the household of God. Like, like we're even closer than that um, in that we're a part of God's royal household. We have a seat at the table with Him. We're a part of his family. We have the same father. We're adopted children, just as he pointed out in chapter one, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, and we should treat one another as family. And today, I think it's really important for us to notice that being a member of a local church, us being members of this local body right here, helps us to express our identity in Christ as citizens of the kingdom, but also as brothers and sisters in Christ. Being part of a church reminds us of who we are in Christ. And then thirdly, finally, Paul says in verses 20 and 21, he says that together we are a holy temple. And look at verses 20 and 21. He says, We are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The picture here is of each one of us as believers in Christ being fit together like stones to form a new temple. God's people from all backgrounds together become the temple of God. Peter shares the same analogy in 1 Peter 2, verse 5, where he says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In this temple analogy, Paul points out in verse 20 that our foundation is, is the apostles and the prophets. Most scholars believe that when he says that, he is referring to the word of God as revealed through the apostles and the prophets. So we're built upon the word. That's our foundation. And he also makes it clear that our cornerstone is Jesus. He is the only one who is capable of providing the unity and the strength that is needed in this new temple. He is the only cornerstone. So he makes that clear. But let us not miss this really important factor, this really cool thing that is going on here. You remember that Paul is speaking to a Gentile audience, right? And so previously, these Gentiles were not allowed into the inner and more sacred parts of the temple. They were kept out of that. And now, because of what Jesus has done, he is saying that they, because of the work of Christ, they are now a part of the temple. Along with us, together, we are believers in this worldwide group of believers who are following God, who become a part of the very temple of God. So those who were once separated, those who once were kept out, are now a part of the very temple of God. And this temple, the church made up of Jews and Gentile believers together is a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, according to verse 22, which he says, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Together, we are a dwelling place for God. Let that sink in. What an honor and privilege it is that the God who created the universe would choose to dwell within us. So what now? What do we do with this? Now that we've walked through this, we know that uh, we were dead in our sin, according to early part of chapter 2. We were without hope, according to verse 12, and we were at odds with God, and we were at odds with each other. But Jesus came to reconcile us to God and to each other. When he paid the price for our sin, he purchased our freedom from sin and from hell, and he freed us from this alienation that we feel from one another. By miracle of God, we are now one. And in being one, we are a representation to the world of what God has done. As Jesus said, they will know us by our love for one another. You know, the opposite is also true. When we are not one, when we don't show the love of God for one another, and we divide ourselves up, based on political or ethnic or social lines or whatever it may be, then we're actually subverting the message of God to the world and then the world winds up missing out on the testimony to his love and possibly even coming to know this love for themselves. So what can we do about it? I'm glad you ask. We can continue to study in Ephesians, that's one thing, and we can see how Paul continues to encourage this particular group of believers And we can remember, as he stated, we can remember who we were before Christ. But we can also do some practical things along the lines of cultivating diversity in our relationships, especially in the church. We can love believers who are not just like us. We can do things like avoiding gossip and slander against one another. We can avoid shooting our wounded I'll go ahead and warn you. Christians will make mistakes. You and I will make mistakes, but let us be known as a redemptive community who condemns sin, but who offer the grace of God to those who have sinned. We can also hold one another accountable. We can remind one another of biblical truth, but we can do so in a spirit of love, wanting to build one another up. We could also build bridges to our fellow church members and believers and not build walls between us. And then I believe we should also elevate the importance of the local church, that we are God's people. And even though to some degree, this may go against our Western individualism, we should value the community of God, the family of God as we come together. And we must remember that together you and I form a picture of the gospel. As we say at Colonial Heights, membership matters. It's important. So I would encourage you, if you're not a member of Colonial Heights or of a local Bible-believing church, I would encourage you to do so today, to become a member of a church like Colonial Heights where we can represent the gospel together. Together we are citizens of God's kingdom, seated at his table with his presence living in us. And we, by our oneness, witness to the world of this amazing miracle of grace. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper as a fulfillment of the Passover meal. What had once separated Jews and Gentiles would now be a meal of unity that would bring them together This morning, we are gonna participate in the Lord's Supper together as a reminder of the blood of Christ that he shed on the cross, his body that suffered death on our behalf in our place. We do this together because in doing so, we're seeing evidence of the miracle of God's work to unite us. This is our testimony to the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice to reconcile all of us to God and to one another. That is why the Lord's Supper is to be shared by those who are believers, those who follow Christ, those who have repented of their sin and believe that Jesus conquered sin and death and hell on our behalf and have acknowledged Jesus as Lord and Savior. So if you're with us this morning and you have not yet repented of your sin and acknowledged Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to invite you to do that now. We're glad that you're here, and I hope that you have heard the gospel clearly in this scripture that we have read and as we have dived into the truth of his word But I want to encourage you to use the next few minutes uh, to talk with God right there at your seat. Maybe consider repenting of your sins and turning to Him, the one who made a way for you to be no longer separated from God and no longer separated from your fellow man. And then later, Following this service, you can talk with someone, and our decision counseling room which is right over here, to my left, uh, to your right, or to one of us who are on staff, or any of our many leaders around us—the deacons that you'll see in a few minutes. Grab one of us; we'll be more than happy to talk to you more about how you can follow Jesus, how you can acknowledge Him as your Lord and Savior. But if you're a believer with us this morning, I want to encourage you to take the next few minutes to examine your heart. <clears throat> We don't want to take the Lord's Supper lightly or with unconfessed sin in our lives. And so I want to encourage you to stop for a few minutes and pray and ask God to reveal what may be hidden sins or things that you're aware of in your life. Confess your sins before the Lord and seek forgiveness before you partake in the Lord's Supper. So now as the deacons come, I want to invite all of us to take a moment and silently pray. I want to give you just a few words of instruction before we participate in the Lord's Supper as the plates are passed uh, down by rows you will notice that um, there are sets of cups and uh, pick up a set of two cups and the bottom cup is the bread and in the top cup is the juice and so if you're a believer and uh, and then I, and, and you have prayed and confessed and you're in a good standing with the Lord, then I encourage you to participate with us by taking a set of cups as they pass by. If you're not a believer or if for some reason you feel like you cannot participate at this time, then just politely pass the plate to the next person. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the gift of your son who paid the ultimate sacrifice with his body and with his blood, that we might be reconciled to you and reconciled to one another. So God, I pray that you would bless this time together as we remember your sacrifice. Let this be a holy time. Let your spirit work and move among us and let us be reminded anew of who we are in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's take out the bread. Matthew, in chapter 26, verse 26, states, Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples, and he said, Take and eat, for this is my body. Now, together, let's hold the juice. Matthew continued in verses 27 and 28 by saying, And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Before I close this time in prayer, I want to invite all of you to respond now to what we've heard and what we've seen today, what we've been a part of. So first of all, let's all stand together. I want to invite all of you to respond by singing praises to God. just partaken of the bread which reminds us of his body that was broken for us, his blood that he shed for us. We have much reason to be grateful, much reason to celebrate and to praise him because of what he has done as we have just witnessed. So I invite all of you to sing joyfully in gratitude to God for all that he has done for us. And then any of you who might like to speak to someone in our decision counseling area, in our prayer room, I want to invite you uh, to respond by uh, coming by and speaking to someone either now or after the service. But right now, I wanna pray for us before we sing. God, we love you and we are so grateful for the gift of your son. Forgive us, Lord, for at times we take part in the Lord's Supper rather flippantly without stopping to think about what it really means, without stopping to think about the pain that Jesus was preparing himself for as he shared his last supper with his disciples. God, we can't imagine the pain that you felt seeing your son crucified on our behalf. And yet, God, we are so incredibly grateful that when you saw us separated from you and, and, and animosity to you and to our fellow man, God, that you chose to do something about it. And you very purposely sent your son, Jesus, to pay the price for our sins so that we could be reconciled to you and reconciled to one another. And so, God, as we have celebrated this time together, as we have celebrated the Lord's Supper together and reminded ourselves of who we are in Christ. God, I pray that you would help us to live now and every day going forward in such a way that the world would know us by the love that we have for you and for the, by the love that we have for one another. So Lord, I pray that you would bless this time now as we respond to you in song, as we respond to you by praying, by dealing with issues that we need to deal with. God, we thank you for the truth of your word and for the hope that we have because of Jesus. It's in his name we pray.